Welcome to the Kennedy Beacon Podcast. I'm Francis Scott here with my buddies, Aaron Good and Nico House. Hey guys, how are you doing? What's going on, Francis? Hi, Francis. Uh, good to see you again. Good to see you guys too. Today, The Real RFK Jr. It's a documentary directed by Ron Lynch and directed by Ron, Ron Lynch and produced by Jeff Hayes. It's all based on a book by Dick Russell. Dick is joining us now. What an amazing film. I thought the book was incredible too, but I'm so glad to have you with us. Thanks, Francis. Good to be with you guys. Well, let's start off with a clip from the film. Hickory Hill was seven acres surrounded by farm fields. My father and mother kept us outdoors all the time. We weren't allowed to come into the house during daylight hours. So we just, we played outside all day. We had free range to go wander as far as we wanted from the house. We would go up in the woods, sometimes miles from the house. There was kind of a, a, a craziness that was going on, the, the intensity. We had a live sea lion that lived in the pool. A lot of times there were fish heads uh, were on, the, on the lawn where he had eaten them. The seal would wander with the dog sometime and leave the property. And on a number of times, people would bring the seal back to us and the dogs. The house was always filled with people, and a lot of them were very well-known people. Supreme Court justices, members of Congress, leaders of the Senate, people who were in the cabinet, civil rights leaders. You know, I might come down to breakfast, and Andy Williams would be there, the singer, and Tommy Smothers, you know, the Smothers Brothers. Just lots of, of celebrities around. Bobby's mother, Ethel, when she and Robert Kennedy uh, were having all these kids, and there were 11 of them, you know, they were inviting all kinds of people over to their home all the time for wild parties in the swimming pool and just crazy adventures and, and going out and having adventures on, on these rivers, these whitewater rafting uh, experiences. My dad was a great athlete. He had played on what was regarded as the biggest and best football team in the history of, of Harvard College. My father made the first string, and he would play football with us. He taught us tennis, he taught us football, he taught us to ski, he taught us whitewater kayaking. We did all the major whitewater rivers at a time when people were not doing that. I had a very rich childhood that was filled with all kinds of adventures. It was in the center of what was happening in America at that time, and the big struggles on civil rights, and the big struggles about war and peace. Our household was the center of all that. So Dick, you wrote The Man Who Knew Too Much on the Trail of the JFK Assassins, The Real RFK Jr. Trials of a Truth Warrior, and a number of other books, and you've co-authored uh, with RFK Jr., <clears throat> Horsemen of the Apolitic, sorry, Horsemen of the Apocalypse, The Men Who Are Destroying Life on Earth and What It Means for Our Children, which is a heavy subject, of course. A lot of your work has been dominated by the Kennedy family story and the national American narrative of the past 60 years. And now this film about RFK Jr., which is intended to help the public get to know Robert Kennedy Jr. as he's running for the office of the presidency, 
Um, uh, you know, you personally are someone that I've known about for many years, I guess, since I started to look at these issues when uh, after the Obama campaign that I, I worked on, he ended up not doing, you know, delivering the change that we needed. And I looked back more at history. I read a lot of books about the Kennedy assassination to try to understand the forces that make presidents just do the same thing over and over again. And usually, you know, a number of bad things defending this empire. And your work uh, has been fascinating to me. So I, I'd read a lot your some of your work on Richard Case Nagel, an important witness, you know, the guy, the subject of the man who knew too much. And I recall that you had written also about election theft in Ohio in 2004, and that Robert Kennedy was writing about that as well. Uh, this was in maybe 05 or 06 in Rolling Stone. So you've really been on these issues for a long time. And uh, to me, it's fascinating that you've been close to Bobby enough to speak with him about about the significance of his family. Uh, and their political significance for our country. And now you've uh, written this biography on him, which has been turned into a film, which I do recommend that everyone sees, because this does show a candidate who's quite different than what we are we are used to. And like you and many others, I'm hoping that he can uh, take his place in history and be the person to guide the American empire as it sort of stops being an empire and takes a different path. So you're you're a uniquely positioned with your life experience, and you also did that recent podcast series with Soledad O'Brien, which was great. A lot of people saw that. I just think you're the, a great person to have done this. And could you tell? So having said all that, uh, why don't you say something about how your own personal connection to Bobby has uh, been influenced by your research on on all of these issues in his family history, and and what are your thoughts here in uh, early 2024? Uh, with this campaign looming in front of us? Yeah, well, that's a big question. Um, my friendship with Bobby goes back uh, more than 20 years to 1998. I first met him. We were we were both environmental advocates, and I was the fo main focus of my writing back in those days. And uh, it was a big fight to save the gray whales from uh, uh, industrial salt works that Mitsubishi and the Mexican government were planning to build in Baja, California, at their, at their pristine breeding ground. So I went to interview Bobby about that because he was a lawyer for the Natural Sources Defense Council and was very involved in, in that issue and trying to stop it. It was successfully stopped in 2000. And I wrote a book called Eye of the Whale where I had a little chapter about Bobby there and had spent time with him at the lagoon. And then I wrote a book about the Atlantic striped bass and uh, a fight that I was very involved in to save the fish from oblivion, from extinction, from overfishing. And Bobby was also very involved with uh, with that in the Hudson River. So we had these common interests, and we I wrote the, that piece that you mentioned about the election. We co-authored that back in uh, 2004 and or five, whichever it was. And I've known him for a long time. And and I you know I didn't write the biography as 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 a campaign biography. I I started working on it in the summer of summer before last, uh, before he'd ever announced for the presidency, because I was just I'd know he was a he was an amazing person, and I'd followed his environmental career, and he'd worked with me on different issues, and. And I thought, you know, he's just being vilified and slandered by the media in ways that that are, are so unfair. And people are maybe forgetting who this guy is amid all these accusations of being an anti-vaxxer and crazy. And he's, you know, so anyway, that's why I, I uh, talked to my publisher, Tony Lyons at Skyhorse and and uh, said, let's do a book. So that's how it began. And of course, now it's taken on a somewhat different dimension because uh, he's running for president, which he told me he was going to do about a month before he announced it last April. Um, and originally, of course, as a, as a Democrat, and now he's been 
really forced into running as an independent and uh, yeah. making a lot of inroads. So I want to preface this next clip because it's great that you brought up the fact that a lot of people vilify him as an anti-vaxxer. And it's important to understand his actual position. And I hope that this clip sheds some light because it'll give you a bit, a bit of a peek into the historical knowledge that RFK has when it comes specifically to the indigenous people and how that particular issue has afflicted them. Let's check out this clip. So there was a situation that occurred also in the early 1990s around this same time where a huge utility called Hydro-Quebec wanted to build these massive dams in a region of Canada where it would have wiped out a number of native villages. One phase of this project had already gone through. It was called the James Bay Project, where the idea of the Quebecian leadership was that they were going to sell this hydropower being generated to the United States. In fact, New York had signed an agreement, a $5 billion contract initially, to accept this hydropower that would be coming, you know, through a series of pipes and so on, and down to New York State. So Hydro-Quebec is one of the biggest dam builders in the world, and they were expanding into northern Quebec. These were the traditional Cree territories, and um, these rivers were basically dislocating communities, and they were doing it without really much compensation or consultation at the time. There was this idea back then that this was for the good of everyone. So in this case, the people were known as the Cree. They'd been around for centuries, living on the same land, and all of a sudden it was all being taken away from them, and mercury pollution was happening in their rivers that was astounding to see. The caribou were dying by the droves, and at the same time, the largest, most cheapest, abundant energy source in North America was looming on the horizon for New Yorkers. If the community had been, you know, some lovely upper middle class area of, of this country, of course the people would have said, oh, we don't want this here, and it wouldn't have happened. But they were expendable, you know, nobody knew much about the Cree, and there were 12,000 of them, and they were, you know, brown people, and it could go ahead. The campaign that the Crees have uh, had in the States and in Europe, all over the world, maybe they were successful at it, but are they Quebecers or not? They live in our territory, they live with us, and they're penalizing Quebecers for that. And that's what I cannot accept and I will never accept. Their territory that they claim is theirs is, uh, is still ours. We haven't given it up yet. About the lack of fundamental procedural rights? Yeah, about the lack of fundamental procedural rights. It's important that people know that this is a reenactment of what's been happening to Indian people since the beginning of time. So one of the things that makes RFK special, in my opinion, is that he, only, he doesn't only understand social issues. He doesn't understand just domestic political issues or even the environment. He actually understands the science behind the ecosystems of the environment. And this, this type of dedication to this issue was evident when he created the Waterkeeper Alliance, which is a group of, of water protectors that he created in 1999. Um, he was even uh, uh, helping out the Lakotas and was, was outspoken about the Dakota Access Pipeline in North Dakota. And I was actually there for that. I actually went to go help protest this issue as well. And I remembered RFK being a part of that protest. So could you explain to us, Dick, how has his relationships that he's created over the last couple of decades with the indigenous people 
that he's interacted with kind of helped to mold his 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 really his dedication to making sure that we protect this environment and environmental issues in general. Oh, yeah, I think it's been very important. You know, when he was a kid, his father took him to the Lakota Reservation and um, he, he later you know took his own son, uh, Bobby the Third there. And they, they he was received an Indian name at a sweat lodge ceremony. Um, so Bobby's always been felt very connected to Native Americans, to African-Americans. Um, he was for a long time in Brooklyn. His father had started this uh, uh, organization to, to pour uh, resources into a, what had been a pretty poor community in Bedford-Stuyvesant. And Bobby, after his father died, took over. He was on the board of that organization for 30 years. So, you know, in all these ways, and, and all, even foreign countries, like internationally, um, he was, I have a chapter in the book on his work in, in Ecuador uh, to stop a, an oil pipeline there. He spent years, by the way, taking people on these amazing whitewater rafting trips, uh, very dangerous ones, in the, especially in the 1970s and 80s uh, to Latin America. He fell in love with Latin America. I mean, he spent summers there in Colombia when he was a kid. So it's a real deep-rooted part of his his nature. And, and of course, uh, you know, he's, he's very important in terms of what he became as an environmental lawyer uh, and, and working closely also with, you know, blue collar fishermen uh, to get the watershed agreement in New York. Uh, he crossed party lines. He worked with upstate Republican farmers in New York who at first just couldn't stand him. And then they got to know him and realized they were on the same page fighting for water protection. So, you know, he's, he's, he's very good at working across uh, boundaries. He doesn't care about whether you're a Republican or a Democrat, you know, it's all about, can we get the job done and protect the people? He's certainly amazing. And every time I hear him speak, I learn something new. I learn about fish. I learn about rivers. I learn about the environment in general. The reason, though, I initially kind of became curious, curious as you did, about Robert F. Kennedy Jr. was when I saw him be absolutely maligned, taken down in the media. And I started doing some digging and, and saying, well, who's telling the truth here? And I would look up the studies he'd mentioned, try to figure out, like, is he taking this out of context? Is he in any way, you know, kind of reporting something that actually isn't true? And I couldn't catch him in a lie or a mischaracterization every time he cites the study. And then you go read the study for yourself and you realize he's the one telling the truth. And it makes sense as someone who was, you know, fighting against these big companies in court, you have to kind of drill down in the details of a lot of these studies. And so you understand that's how he has the ability to do it. He transitioned um, from being, you know, obviously an environmental attorney, didn't really mean to, but got into the whole vaccine issue at the behest of mothers who were approaching him and saying, you need to look into this, you need to look into this. And finally he did. And this he goes into in the film. Let's listen to a little bit about how he got into the whole vaccine debate right here in clip number three. They had convened this meeting because all these mothers who were complaining to CDC that my kid got poisoned by a vaccine and got autism, they actually did a study and they used the biggest database in the, in the country called the Vaccine Safety Data Link, which is it's the vaccination records from the top 10 HMOs from millions of clients. So they looked at the hepatitis B vaccine given during the first 30 days, and they'd compare that to people, kids who got it later or didn't get it at all. That vaccine was just loaded with mercury. And what they found is kids who got it during the first 30 days had an 1135% greater chance of getting a later autism diagnosis. 
And they knew right then what was causing the autism epidemic. Autism had gone from one in 10,000 in my generation, and it still is in 69-year-old men, to one in 34 in my kids' generation. And all these mothers were saying, it's the vaccine. And uh, Sarah Bridges was one of them. And the vaccine court agreed until it became prohibited to acknowledge that. So they knew. And I don't know how it happened, but somebody had transcribed that meeting. And I published them in Rolling Stone magazine and in Salon simultaneously. And then Salon withdrew it six years later, withdrew the article, and then Rolling Stone finally, 16 years later during the pandemic, when Rolling Stone was taken over by pharmaceutical people, they also withdrew it. And that was the beginning of my battle with the pharmaceutical industry. Dick, you know him so well. How does he respond or how have you seen him, seen him affected by being called anti-vax or anti-science for so many years now? Does it affect him at all? Well, it affects him in sure, in the sense that uh, he knows that's not what he is. I mean, he's spoken about it many, many times and said, you know, I'm not anti-vax. In fact, you know, all his kids are vaccinated. Um, he was vaccinated in the past, um, not, not during the COVID era. Uh, and, but, and, and, you know, he, he says, I'm, I'm for safe vaccines. I want all the vaccines that are given to our children and ourselves later, you know, to be tested against a placebo and go through these rigorous clinical trials. But, you know, he was able to determine through a lot of review of documents that that had never happened. Certainly didn't happen for the COVID vaccines, but even before that. And this is at a time when the rate of chronic disease in this country has soared, you know, from like 13% 20, 30 years ago to uh, to 50, over more than 50% now, chronic disease. It's an epidemic, really. And, uh, you know, I mean, there's various factors involved, many of which he's taken on. You know, he fought Monsanto in the courts and and uh, their glyphosate pesticide that's been, you know, poisoning all of us, really, you know, in, the, in lawn care products and on the farms. So, you know, I mean, he's he's been there for many, many years and realizes that it's agency capture by the pharmaceutical the pharmaceutical companies and the people they're supposed to be regulating. This was true of the EPA. That's what he found, that they they weren't going after a lot of these bad guys because they were in their pocket. So mm -hmm. that's what he brings to, this, to the issue. And he would really, really change this situation if he can get elected. You know, Dick, really quick before Aaron jumps in, I, I found it insane to me that basically RFK Jr. gets attacked for asking for science to take place because effectively if you even say i just want the process to be rigorous and have a bunch of checks that like that's crazy right but that would also mean that for the first time in the history of all of science pharmaceutical com companies got it right the first time and that everybody needs a one-size-fits-all solution to the medicine that they're putting in their body which i mean me and my my son take different you know uh different amounts of ibuprofen you know, and that's something really small. And, and yeah, it's significant, but it's not as significant as putting a vaccine in your body. And yet, whenever someone like RFK Jr. with the science to back it says, I just want a more rigorous process. They label him an anti-vaxxer when that is, in fact, pro-science and pro-scientific process. Exactly. Yep. Yep. I totally agree with you. And, and you know, I mean, but as he's pointed out, the pharmaceutical industry is basically they, they took over the TV news networks as far as advertising. 
I mean, mm -hmm. as well as the political scene in Washington and their, their lobbyists dominate uh, more than any other industry. And it's, it's really tough, you know, to combat that. And also yeah. the mindset that was created, you know, during COVID, for example, by Anthony Fauci and Bill Gates. I mean, people, you know, want to believe that the vaccines were a panacea and, and, uh, you know, there's obviously for some people, of course, they, they weren't entire, they didn't kill, you know, uh, people that uh, on, a, on an unprecedented level, but they, a lot of people got injured. That's been buried. And, uh, you know, the vaccines clearly are not as effective as they were telling us that they were going to be. So one of the reasons for Kennedy's, uh, I mean, the importance of Kennedy's run for the presidency is because we've been subjected to such an enormous amounts of uh, corporate censorship yeah. and really the government using the corporations as their stalking horse to enact censorship regimes. We talked about Assange here last week, and Kennedy has called for him to be pardoned immediately. Um, but Bobby himself has been the subject of massive amounts of censorship. I think that the story of Biden wanting to have him censored, like basically on his first day of office, is really telling. And it's all the more alarming in light of some of these stories that are starting to come be discussed more of uh, vast amounts of excess deaths that coincide with the rollout of those vaccines and that are not explained that much also yep. or very well or the new uh, the, the the pathologists who are finding this, these bizarre blood clot formations especially in uh corpses but in also there have been you know anecdotal reports of them being found in live patients which don't have much of an explanation and you know you're you've been around the area of like conspiratorial politics or parapolitics so you'll, you'll be familiar with uh, Peter Dell Scott's idea of the negative template, you know, the, the missing piece that, that is important. Like, why does the Warren report not mention Jack Ruby's ties to the mob, for example? That's kind of his yeah. prototypical one. But this m issue of the mortality is a negative template, a kind of censorship uh, that is, is, a bit, is frightening. And the fact they wanted to censor him right away is, is really frightening. So um, let's take a, we have a clip. Let's take a look on, at what Bobby has said on this issue of government censorship. Uh, we'll now go with opening testimony. Mr. Kennedy, you are recognized for your opening statement. Excuse me, point of order. I know that witnesses usually have five minutes. I see 10 minutes on board. Is it right. going to be 10 minutes? We'll for give him five witness? minutes, but we're, we're pretty lax with this. Um, we'll let him go for we are? a little, yeah. Okay, in, okay. In, let's we'll give, just we'll watch give you the time. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Mr. Chairman, maybe and, we could put five minutes on the clock then, not 10. And so. if you want to cut him off and censor him some more, you're welcome to do it. Oh, that's not my job. That's your job. Why don't you threaten the witness? These are defamations and mal malignancies that are used to censor me to prevent people from listening to the actual things that I'm saying. My whole Instagram account with 900,000 people was taken down. There was no misinformation on my Instagram account. Everything I put on that account was cited and sourced the peer-reviewed publications or government databases. Nobody has ever pointed to a single piece of misinformation that I publish. So now I'm subject to this new form of censorship, which is called targeted propaganda, where people apply pejoratives like anti-vax. I've never been anti-vaccine, but everybody in this room probably believes that I have been. Anti-Semitism, racism, these are the most appalling, disgusting pejoratives, and they're applied to me 
to silence me. And by the way, I want to say this while I'm on the record. In my entire life, I have never uttered a phrase that was either racist or anti-Semitic. All the things that I'm accused of right now by you and in this letter are distortions, they're misrepresentations. I didn't say those things. I have never been anti-vax. All my children are vaxxed. I'm fully compliant with the vaccine schedule myself, except for COVID. I have never told the public avoid vaccination. I believe vaccines should be tested with the same rigor as other medicines and medications. I spent 30 years trying to get mercury out of the fish in this country, and nobody ever called me any fish. We were trying to get mercury out of vaccines because mothers were coming and saying, my child was injured. And they said, nobody's listening to us. And I felt like I should listen to them and actually read the science. And that is what got me down into the time. And by the way, it's the worst career decision I have ever made. <laughs> Debate, congenial, respectful debate is the fertilizer, it's the water, it's the sunlight for our democracy. We need to be talking to each other. And the First Amendment was not written for easy speech. It was written for the speech that nobody likes you for. Wow. So I, I think that's a really compelling clip. He has taken an enormous amount of flack on this issue, and there's not really a constituency that is that he is drawing upon to do this. It's really some public health advocacy that is really, you know, led to his being slandered and censored all across the media. So, Dick, can you give us some insight into how he is able to take on these issues uh, of massive, you know, institutional corporate corruption, governmental corruption, uh, and how he's able to persist even in the face of censorship and defamation that seems kind of unique for, for any uh, political figure, public figure that I can think of. At least one with that's that's political royalty like Kennedy. Yeah, I mean, you know, I call it moral courage, which is something that his father talked about. And by the way, you know, they, when he was a kid, debate among all of the siblings, there were 11 altogether, was, was that happened every single night. And they fought it out. They argued. And it was, you know, it led somewhere. It opened minds instead of being so no, I mean, it's, it's crazy what's happened. I mean, the government and the uh, and the media, social media have banded together. It's now come out that they they work together to censor Bobby and others. Um, and and that that's so anti-American. It's so against our, our Bill of Rights, our Constitution. And, and Bobby's got a lot of guts. <laughs> I mean, I, I, he really, you know, he's steeled in he's forged in a lot of things. I mean, he, he you know, he came out of a you can imagine what he went through after his father died. He's spoken openly about the fact that he was uh, an addict, a heroin addict for, for 15 years from a teenage period on into his late 20s, almost died eventually and, and uh, went into rehab and AA, which he's still into this day. I mean, he's talked about that quite openly because, you know, he, he's been, on, been to the bottom. I mean, he knows what it's like. He knows what it's like to have to have the discipline uh, and, the, and the courage to overcome something like that. I think he'd be terrific with families that are going through fentanyl crises with the, with their kids today uh, in terms of helping. He wants to build these rehab centers uh, all over the country, unique kinds of, of places that, that uh, young people could go who have these kinds of problems. So, you know, he, he's got, he's got, he's just got a lot of courage and, and he's devoted because when he believes in something, he's just not going to quit. 
Uh, he's not going to just because even his own family may oppose him on certain things. He's not going to going to, you know, just throw up his hands and say, well, I tried. You know, he's in this fight to win, to become president of the United States, because he didn't see anybody else who could get out there. And as he his campaign slogan puts it, heal the divide at a time when this country is on the verge of who knows what, you know, if we if we just continue in the same vein that we are. And your yeah. book. Oh, go ahead. Oh, go ahead. No, your book. Your book showed me that he clearly is a Kennedy, huge, privileged childhood, but at the same time, crazy tragedies that I hope most of us never have and never will have to deal with. But then, you know, when he takes time and he essentially becomes not a Kennedy for a little while, like when you describe and when the film shows us that he's, you know, riding trains across America and all over living mm. for summers in South America and visiting Africa and a lot of people not understanding who he is at that time. It's, it's like he essentially got to experience life like the rest of us have lived yeah. it. And that I feel like gave him an appreciation for, you know, every man and a, and a desire to defend essentially the little people, the ones who are being victimized by giant corporations and, and the media in many cases. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I think that's absolutely true. I mean, I write about a lot in the book and it's also in the film about how when he was a kid, he just took off one summer and, and uh, rode freight trains with bums, <laughs> you know, shared meals with them. Never that's even crazy. revealed he was a Kennedy. I mean, you know, it's pretty amazing. And then, and then, yeah, the, all the different experiences he had in Latin America and in Native American and reservations in the black community as well. I mean, he's a fighter for the, the downtrodden, for the middle class. Um, he's putting forward a lot of very interesting proposals to do something about, say, the home buying situation where young people today can't afford to buy one because everything's being bought up by these big companies like BlackRock. So, I mean, this is the kind of thing that, you know, he's putting out there. He's He's talking about the immigration problem in the sense that the Mexican drug cartels are basically running the show in a lot of these places. So we got to do something about that. Uh, nobody, no other candidates talking about these things. So, you know, uh, he's he's going to he's going to stay in the fight for the long haul. Yeah, ho hopefully he talks about the fact that all we have to do is, you know, stop funding them and allow them to do it <laughs> as far as the Mexican drug cartels are going. But um, Kennedy has been censored almost across the board, except for in the, in the podcast space, which was almost, yeah. I, I didn't know how he was gonna fare in the podcast space, not because of, he's an excellent interviewer, we already know that, but um, sometimes the podcast space can be just as vitriolic as the mainstream, right? But he's had a lot of success there, despite all the smears that have come against him. And I would probably argue that's because he's been allowed to actually expound upon his thoughts. Right. And he actually gets a chance to clarify yeah. what he says. But I would even say probably most importantly, they don't focus on the smears, but they instead tend to focus on are the issues that Kennedy is actually discussing that the other candidates are, in fact, not discussing. Uh, before we get into this, <clears throat> this last clip and, and wrap it up here, I want to say that I hope you guys pay particular attention because this, this clip is demonstrative and probably the most intimate clip. Of, of just who RFK Jr. is outside the politics, outside the presidential run, outside the Democratic Party, even outside of being a Kennedy. It's just really emblematic of who RFK is as a person and, and that person that eventually became inspired to run for president. My dad loves dogs. At one point, 
There was a puppy situation, and I think we had like 20. We had a deer, we had two emus, peacocks, chickens, the snapping turtle, the crocodiles. They weren't that nice, but they were fun. And a lot of them end up in the swimming pool as a sort of challenge, like, you better learn to swim fast. Basically, name a bird, we've probably had multiple of them. Lots of crows, lots of ravens, both of them mimic. My dad likes to teach them things. He had one named Poe, and then I just remember it said, oh boy, oh boy, oh boy, oh boy, oh boy, oh boy, oh boy. And so they're fun. So he has the rehabilitation license in New York State, so all these animals that show up in people's backyards that have a broken wing or are injured, they end up at our house. And they're always in the house. Like, you walk into the house and there's like five turkeys sitting on the couch watching TV. And the emus, you know, the emu's taller than you. He has such a strong relationship with God, and the conduits are animals and nature. He looks around him, and that's how he sees God. Since the day I was born, his day begins, is dictated by, and ends with God and his alignment with God. He's wildly spiritual. As a witness of his behavior, he wakes up and he says his prayers. He prays to God, he prays to Saint Francis, who is his patron saint, and he prays every night for all the poor people, the sick people, the people in jail. Every meal is said with grace. He has been to the bottom, knows what it's like down there, knows what pain is about and struggle, and what death is about, because he's seen a lot of it in his family and through the loss of his uncle and his father, through years of addiction that he's gone through and weathered the storm, through so many tragedies in his family and his brothers, you know, one died of an overdose, another died in a skiing accident, and, you know, his, his second wife committed suicide. I mean, through all of that, he's a spiritual guy. Animals are probably the most vulnerable beings on the planet next to children but uh, especially injured animals, right? And, and there's very rarely anybody who's like powerful, rich and famous actually literally taking animals into their home to take care of them. And that really says a lot about the way, um, it says a lot about the way Kennedy handles himself in, in vulnerable people, not only obviously when it comes to like animals, but like vulnerable people literally outside of his home. Because if you want to take those people in, imagine how much are those animals in, imagine how much you're doing outside of your home. And I just feel like his his history, like you talked about in Bed-Stuy in Brooklyn with the indigenous people, the fights for the environment, the mothers with the vaccine, it's just, it's the, his history is emblematic of somebody who's going to fight for somebody they can't fight for themselves. Yeah, it's really indicative of his heart too. And if you, you know, you're looking at who who do we want to be our leader? Who can we trust? You know, somebody might not always make the decision that you like. Maybe they make a mistake. Maybe they listen and correct it. But in the end, do you trust their heart? 
And I think that's so key. And it's what I look for when I'm thinking about who's going to get my vote. Yeah, I, I'm not a person who's overtly religious, but um, I kind of generally adhere to the Quaker idea that there's some spark of divinity that we must hold as like sacred in, in human beings. And it's hard to have that position and be anywhere around actual power in human civilizations because human civilizations are always predicated upon the exploitation really at the bottom so that the top, the people at the top are the people at the top and they have all that wealth and that power. And I, I think about J JFK as president and how he had to accommodate these light and dark forces. He had these communications with the Pope at the time. I believe people in his family were communicating with like Thomas Merton, uh, exchanging letters about the kind of spiritual crisis represented by the, the nuclear age and the Cold War. And the Cold War itself seems to be a, more of a dark enterprise for U.S. global dominance, in my estimation. We can now mm -hmm. say that that's really what it was. And we, you know, they won the Cold, they quote unquote, won the Cold War. And then they just decided they would try to, you know, take over the rest of the world, essentially, and dominate the former communist world. And it's not really working out that way. Uh, but Kennedy tried to accommodate, JFK tried to accommodate these forces. And, you know, he said the things you had to say about the Cold War and about communism. They tried to accommodate the darker forces in American life. They didn't fire J. Edgar Hoover. They didn't initially fire Alan Dulles. And yet he did not accommodate the dark forces uh, or, or manage them or overcome them. In the end, they just shot him because they have that the dark forces of darkness in the world and human politics have a veto power of basically violence and murder. And if you're a good guy, you don't have that the same way. How is his spirituality going to impact the way that he, in running for president and acting as president, the way that he will accompany the or accommodate the light and dark forces that a animate our uh, human life, really, our civilization? Well, you know, he's it's an internal thing, but he's he's seen the light and the dark through much of his life. And, uh, you know, what he what he faced, of course, with the assassinations in his family and then gradually coming to realize that it wasn't the truth that we were being told. Uh, about what happened to them. Um, he lives with that. He speaks about it openly now, um, which is, you know, quite pretty incredible. I mean, he's drawing on a lot. That's, that's, uh, I mean, he was, when he wanted, when he was a kid, he wanted to be a veterinarian and his father encouraged him in that. And that was where his feeling for animals began. And then he, there were birds, you know, he was amazed with birds and especially falcons and hawks. And, and uh, he still, trains falcons and to release them and watch them come back and you know so he's connected to the earth in that kind of spiritual way that they talked about in the documentary that's uh that moves him that drives him and and it's also compassion for people and that's his kind of spirituality too you know that he he, he was moved by a woman whose child had autism and demanded that he read these documents and so he did and it changed him he was willing to grow and change. He didn't want anything to do with this, quote, issue. He's talked about that, but he didn't feel like he had any choice. Who else was speaking out for them? And it's just been true all along the line. So, you know, I think in him we would get a president who uh, is completely unique in terms of recent years. He went through when he was a kid, as I did too, 
you know, a period where if his if his family had not been in office, we wouldn't be sitting here talking. The world would have blown up, or at least a lot of us, you know, our families and everything would have disappeared. But um, you know, they they gave their all. Uh, his his uncle sacrificed his life really for that. And Bobby has talked about he's he's a peace president. I mean, he's going to do something about the war in Ukraine. He's going to do something about the border issue. Um, and you're just not hearing that today when most everything is still, you know, run by the buck. And uh, of course, he terrifies them. Um, they're out to stop him in any way they can. They won't give him Secret Service protection, uh, which is pretty outrageous. Uh, but he's going to hang in there no matter what. And uh, he's a fighter for you and me and the people. You can't help but hope that the completion of his story will be kind of like a redemption story starting, you know, however many years ago um, with, with the Kennedys and the first onset of the Kennedys and so much tragedy. You can't help but watch the film, read your book and realize, you know, there are some parallels. You see um, like the book of the Bible and Job and how there's just tragedy after tragedy. And you go, gosh, why does all this happen to this one person? And then you you see that person and they don't lose their faith. And it reminds me of the, the verse that talks about rejoicing in your suffering because it produces character and perseverance and ultimately hope. And that's what I have when I look at Robert F. Kennedy Jr. The more I get to know uh, his life story and his outlook on things, it gives me a lot of hope. And I feel like that's exactly what this country needs right now. Yeah. And he talks about Sisyphus rolling that uh, boulder up the hill. And even though it kept coming back down on him, he just kept at it. And that was the redemption for him. And, uh, you know, Bobby's very connected to to mythology, to to that world. His father was so into the ancient Greeks. He tells the story of how uh, the last gift that his father gave him was Camus' book, The Plague. And uh, we don't have time to go into all that detail, but it's in the film and it's in the book. And and it's quite fascinating that uh, he wondered for years, why did my dad give me that book? And look at what we're facing today. You know, you know, it's funny. Every, I feel like a lot of people who are very in, like into Greek mythology are also really spiritual. I'm, my name's, I was named after the goddess Nike. I know my name's Nico, but it's like the male version of it. It actually means victory for the people. And I've actually always been a spiritual person myself. So it's interesting that you say that. Uh, but Dick, it's been an absolute pleasure having you on. Uh, we're coming to the end of our podcast. Francis, you want to go ahead and take us out? Yes. Thank you so much, Dick, for joining us. We thank you guys and also want to remind our viewers, please check out on Substack, which if you don't know, it's an app. It's a place you can go and read articles, find great reporting. We hope you will check us out, the Kennedy Beacon on Substack. And as always, thank you so much for joining us. We leave you now with one final clip the last few minutes of the real RFK Jr. His life is totally screwed over by half the stuff he says. I mean, think about what he's done to his life. He was a prominent environmentalist with the hottest friends and the coolest life and, by the way, a bunch of money. Look, he, he threw it out the window because of something he believed in. He wants to make the world a better place. Unfortunately, the stories that are told about him do not portray that in any way. But I wish everyone could spend a day with him, see exactly how he is, how he behaves, what motivates him. Because it's not any kind of violent mindset. It's about making sure that the people who are suffering the most 
by suffering less. Months before my dad died, he gave me a book. And my father would often give us books, and he gave me a lot of different books, but he handed me this book, The Plague, by Camus, and said, I want you to read this. And he said it with a particular intensity. And then he was killed within maybe six weeks of that. So that book was sitting on my shelf, and I read it a couple of times because it seemed like a key to something that, you know, I had to decipher, you know, why did he want me to read that with such intensity? And Camus, who wrote The Plague, he was kind of the legatee of the Stoics, that ancient philosophy of Stoicism. And The Plague was about a doctor who's living in a quarantine city in North Africa when a plague hits it. A lot of it is this conversation the doctor is having with himself about whether he should go out and do his job to, to heal people, to console them. But he's terrified because nobody knows what causes the plague. He doesn't have any way of treating it. He can't treat it any better than anybody else. And he knows that there's a high likelihood he's gonna catch it and die if he goes out and helps other people. In the end, he goes out and does that because that's his duty. And Camus, the iconic hero of the Stoics, is Sisyphus. And Camus wrote another book about Sisyphus. Sisyphus was a mythic figure who offended the gods by doing something good for humanity. And he was sentenced for perpetuity to push a giant boulder up the hill. And he pushed it all day long. And at nightfall, he'd get it to the top and it would roll him and mangle him. And then he had to hike down and do it again. And he had to do that every day, forever. And most people would say, that's pretty awful. That's a bad sentence. Um, but for the Stoics, Sisyphus was a happy man because he put his shoulder to the wheel and he was doing his duty. And in doing that, taking the little thing that he was assigned to do and doing it well and doing it with diligence and relentlessly, he somehow was bringing order to an absurd universe. And the doctor who went out and treated the patients was doing the same thing. He was doing his duty. And whether it, the outcome was satisfactory or fulfilling was irrelevant. What's relevant is whether you're doing what you're supposed to do. And that turned out to be a very important message for me in the way that I live my life. Because it's not, you know, about outcomes. It's about how you process reality and how you handle it. And the reality is that none of us have any power over anything except for this little piece of real estate inside of our own shoes. And, you know, the outcome for everything is ultimately in God's hands, except about how we conduct ourselves. And the trick to life is to not have expectations, but just to know what your duty is and to do it. And if you don't have expectations, you'll never have disappointments. And if you don't have disappointments, you're never gonna get crushed and you become relentless. Nobody can defeat you because whether you win or lose is irrelevant. The only thing that's relevant is how you conduct yourself in the battle. And that to me was a really important lesson in how to live life.